Thank you, my brother. Brother Jerry is uh, running around, working hard, earning his living today. So y'all pray for him as he uh, returns back to his congregation. That song is about what happens to us when we die. So what happens to you when you die? It's a good question, isn't it? In fact, it's the question. And really, in some ways, the answer depends on who you ask, doesn't it? What happens to you when you die? Right now, somewhere in the world, I can imagine that there is some grieving family that is burying a faithful Roman Catholic grandmother. And in their hearts, they believe that she is now in heaven. But maybe somewhere before they have the funeral mass, their priest gently reminds them, no, grandma is not in heaven. Grandma is in purgatory. And she's going to be there for a couple hundred years before she's ready for the big show. Somewhere in the world today, perhaps, a Muslim terrorist will strap a suicide vest to himself and go into a bus station and blow himself to pieces. And he'll do that with the belief that he is going to be escorted immediately into paradise to be surrounded by 72 virgins. The families of the Orthodox Jewish people that he may kill, they will grieve their loved ones and bury them, believing that at the last day in some sort of general resurrection, they may rise again. Somewhere today, I promise you, in Alabama, there is some preacher who is going to bury a cousin, and he is going to be shocked that the song they picked for the funeral is Freebird. Been there, done that, I promise you. What happens when you die? Depends on who you ask. Uh, we want to know, don't we, what comes next for us after this life is over? Even Christians have a lot of questions about that. In fact, some years ago, there was a rash of popular books that were broadly Christian that were the stories of people who had died, who were clinically dead, who had claimed to have seen heaven and then came back. They're like 40 minutes in heaven and the boy who went to heaven and all of this kind of stuff. I call those books heavenly tourism books. Here's what it's like in heaven, and here's how Jesus sent me back so I can make a fortune off of what I saw. Seems legit, doesn't it? Even Christians want to know what happens to us. And sometimes Christians have this idea of things that happen after we die that really isn't so much Christian as it is just broadly pagan. We think, you know, we feel our loved ones every time we see the wind blowing through the leaves or whatever. What does that have to do with anything? If you ask Hollywood, there's a good chance that after you die, you're going to come back as a zombie. If you ask the Hindus, there is no doubt that you're going to spend some time as a cow after you're dead. So what happens to us after we die? I'm sure that for most of you, you don't really think that, that what happens after you die has anything to do with zombies or cows. Uh, most of you probably think that purgatory is, is not real, with all due respect to our Catholic friends. But uh, even though our ideas about heaven, our ideas about the afterlife may be informed by Christianity... A lot of times, even Christians don't necessarily understand why heaven is such a good goal for their lives. And when we do, and perhaps you're here today, a lot of times people who think they're going to heaven and believe they're going to heaven and believe heaven is a good goal, they really don't live every day as if heaven is their home. 75% of people in America believe that they are going to go to heaven when they die. Let's just say I hope they're right, but... Some of them got my doubts. 75% of us believe we're going to heaven when we die, but that doesn't seem to make any difference in the way we live day to day, does it? Today, we're going to talk about what happens when we die. That 10 minutes, 5 minutes, an hour after you're dead, then what? 
from a place in Scripture where we find out this important idea that I want you to take with you today, that when a person who believes in Jesus dies, they are not losing anything, but they are gaining everything. I want to show you this from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 1. If today you are looking forward to going to heaven when you die, but what it's going to be like when you get there, it's all just a little bit murky, then maybe this will help clear up some of that fog. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. Would you stand with me as we read these verses of Scripture today? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 1. The Bible says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens for in this tent in this tent we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked for while we are still in this tent we groan being burdened not that we would be unclothed but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee So we are always of a good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You can be seated And I believe the Lord is really going to encourage you and help you today. Now, the book of 2 Corinthians is one of the most personal letters that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. He's writing to a church that he started, a church that he loved dearly, but a church that has kind of started to turn away from the Apostle Paul. They do not trust him. They wonder if he really is preaching the truth to them. There are people that are questioning his motives and questioning his ministry. And much of what the Apostle Paul is doing in the book of 2 Corinthians is he is really just pouring his heart out to this church saying, this is who I am. This is what drives me. This is what is motivating me to serve Jesus and to serve you. He's explaining to them, here is the reason that I have put up with everything that I have put up with. When it's come to serving Jesus. Serving Jesus was not always easy for Paul. Sometimes it was very costly for Paul. And in the book of 2 Corinthians, he explains why that is. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, the apostle Paul explains what his life was like. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. He says, we are perplexed, but we're not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. What Paul's doing in 2 Corinthians is he is showing this church the reason, the motivation for the compassion and the commitment and the courage that he has. And what he does here in 2 Corinthians 5 is he goes deep into his heart and he says that all of those virtues that we would admire in him, his courage, his faithfulness, his faith, his drive, his hope, his joy, every bit of that comes from a heart that is fixed on heaven. That's what he's writing about in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. So what I want to do is look at Paul's heart that is gripped by heaven. Today as we try and answer that question, you're dead, now what? 
Because again, I want to remind you, one day all of you are going to be dead. And then what? What comes next? Paul shows us the answer in these verses by giving us two facts that he's confident will happen to us when we die if we know Jesus as our Savior. And the first fact he gives us in verses 1 through 5 is that the future for the believer involves a great trade-off. The future involves a great trade-off. Now Paul begins by saying, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building not made with hands, permanent in the heavens. Before we look at Paul's imagery here, I want to just dwell in that word, no. Do you notice the confidence that Paul has here? We know that if our earthly home is destroyed, we have something better and more eternal waiting for us. The reality is for us today, there's a lot about the future we don't know, right? How many of you know what you're going to have for lunch today? Three of you, exactly right. How many of you know you're going to argue with your wife about it before you get out of the parking lot? Amen. We don't know what's going to happen to us the rest of the day. I have no idea what I'm going to be doing this Thursday. Do you? I don't even know if I'm going to live to Thursday. There is so little about the future that we actually know, virtually nothing that we actually know. But here Paul says, I know that whatever the future holds, when this life is over, I know that I will be with the Lord. And I know that I will be better off. So I want you to see here right away that Paul is talking about things that he is certain of. He's talking about things he knows. And I want you to hear me well this morning. That for you, heaven does not just have to be something you hope to come true one day. You don't have to come in here today and look at the future and say, man, I hope I make it. You don't have to say, I hope that one day I'm there, or I like to think that that's where I'm going. It is something that you can know. You can know that even though there is a lot unknown between here and there, the one thing you know, the one thing you know is that when this life is over, you are going to be with Jesus. Every one of you here today can know that, and Paul knows it. And the reason he knows it is because he knows that he knows Jesus. And because he knows Jesus, he has confidence that when this tent, he says, when it is destroyed, we have a building made from God. That's the first image that he uses. He's talking about this body and this life as if it is a tent, as if it is something that is temporary, as if it is something that is transient, as if it is something that is fading away, as if it really is something that is not made to last. And that's true, isn't it? Because a tent is, uh, it's impermanent. It's not something that lasts. Uh, you may go take a camping trip and spend a weekend or maybe even a week in a tent, but if you live your life inside of a tent, somewhere along the way you've made some bad choices, okay? Because that's not the way it works. You're not supposed to live inside of a tent. Years ago, I used to work for this guy named Todd, and Todd was the worst boss that I've ever had and honestly one of the worst people that I've ever known. And uh, Todd is actually dead now, and no, I didn't kill him, but Todd, <laughs> Todd was one of these people, I don't know if you've ever met anybody like this, most of you have, Todd is one of these people who looked like the before picture in a fitness commercial, but acted like he looked like the after picture, okay? And so Todd used to always eat for lunch these bean sprout sandwiches. They smelled like an old dog box, they were terrible. And he, he thought that was going to keep him alive and keep him looking young. And if I've got to eat bean sprout sandwiches every day for lunch to look young and alive, I want to be dead and old. That's just where we are. But he would always say to me, his nickname for me was Lumpy. I was a little heavier then. That's what I told you I didn't like him. His nickname was for, for me was Lumpy. And he would say Lump. Or he'd call me Lump. He would say Lump. 
He said, I treat my body like a temple, and you treat yours like a tent. You know, I'm over there eating my two Baconators and chicken nuggets, and he's eating his bean sprouts. He says, I treat my body like a temple. You treat your body like a tent. Here the apostle Paul says, this body is a tent because this body does wear out. Like a tent, this body can fall apart. It can decay. And you know how tents are. Tents can dry rot. Tents can get their zipper stuck. And that happens in our lives too, doesn't it? Some of y'all feel like you're dry rotten today. You feel like you got a zipper or a piece or two that's stuck. And what Paul is getting at is this. It's an incredible image. He's saying that for God's people, when this life is over, we are trading the temporary, we are trading the transient, we are trading the fading for something that is real. We are trading this temporary tent of a body for the more permanent, more lasting, heavenly, what does he say? Building that Jesus has made for us. He says then that when the child of God leaves this world, whatever the circumstances may be, they are trading something temporary for something permanent. They are trading something that fades away for something real and something lasting. And then to make that point even further, he gives a different metaphor to, uh, in verse number three. He says that when we put on our heavenly dwelling, we will not be found naked. Now he's mixing his metaphors and what he's doing is he's saying that when we die, and this is so important, and I want those of you that believe in Jesus and know and are sure you're going to heaven, I want you to make sure you understand Paul's argument here because I meet Christians all the time who are, seem to be convinced that, that when they die and go to heaven, that somehow they're going to be somewhat worse off because they're going to be away from their family, they're going to be away from their body, and there's confusion about what comes next. But I want you to hear Paul's metaphor. Paul says that when we die, when we trade our tent for our permanent dwelling, we are not going to be naked. We are going to be clothed. We are not losing anything. We are gaining something. Now, the, the underlying argument, the supposition, of course, is that it's better to have clothes on than it is to be naked. Now, first of all, I hope you know that's something the Bible would tell you. But in our world, we go to Walmart, and, and not everybody believes this, do they? But... But understand that it is that clothing is a good thing because clothing offers not merely modesty but protection. Uh, this time of year it offers warmth. Clothing is a good thing. And Paul says for us as children of God that when we die we are not losing anything. We're not being made naked. We are putting something on. We are being clothed. We are adding something eternal. I remember years ago when I first started pastoring, there was a child in our church. The parents came to me and said that they had some questions about heaven. They were starting to ask questions, I think like four or five, starting to ask questions the way kids do sometimes when they're that age. And they wanted me to talk to them. I thought, heck yeah, man, for a four-year-old, anything they can ask, I'm going to sound like a genius. So I said, yeah. And so they started asking questions. And when I got to the bottom of it, what I realized was that this kid was afraid to die and go to heaven. Not that they were afraid to die any more than anybody else is, but they were afraid to go to heaven. Because to them, heaven was this ethereal world where everybody floated around in clouds. There was nothing real to it. There were fat babies floating around playing harps, you know, angels and all this stuff. And it did not seem real and substantial to them. And they were afraid to leave this world that seemed so real to go to that world. And there are a lot of Christians that are way past four-year-old. They've got the same hang-up. 
Because they think that they're leaving behind something in this world that they can't experience in heaven. Well, friends, Paul is telling us here in this text of Scripture that when we die, he says specifically, that our mortality is swallowed up in life. That we are trading the transient, the temporary, the dying, the decaying, the diseased for the eternal, the lasting, the glorious, and the good. Paul is saying, in other words, that when we get to heaven, we are not going to be worse off than we are now. We're going to be better off than we are now. We're not going to go to heaven and know less than we do now. We're going to go there and we're going to know more than we do now. We're going to be better off when we get there. It should seem obvious, but we are so attached to this world and so bound to our bodies in this world that we can't imagine what it's like not to be here, can we? But what Paul is saying to us is a revolutionary way to think about heaven because he's saying that that world is more real than this world. Hear that. That world is more real than this world. That's not the world of shadows and mystery. That's the world of solid substance and stuff. This is the world of shadow. This is the world of mystery. This is the world where life can be swallowed up by death. That's the world where death, thank God, is swallowed up by life. And that's what Paul says in this text of Scripture. He says that we are waiting for the day when what is mortal may be swallowed up by life in verse number 4. Now that really just echoes what he had written in 1 Corinthians 15 that we looked at last week, right? Where he interviews death and he asks death in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Because death has been swallowed up in victory. And he reminds us that one day the children of God will trade this body for a perfect body. One day we will trade death for life. One, way we, one day we will trade uncertainty for certainty. And I know I preached all that last week, but I had so much fun, I'm going to do it again. One day when this life is over, God's people will leave behind a world full of sin and sickness and disappointment to go to a world where there is no death, where there is no dying, and there are no more tears for God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That is the hope that we have as God's people. And folks, as excited as we get about that and as excited as we should get about that, I want you to hear me today. That's not really what should excite us about what's coming next. I was thinking about this yesterday as I was mulling over what I would say this morning. And I thought about this. That one day, one day there will come a day in my life when I'm going to come into a church and I'm going to do what we did this morning for the last time. I'm going to raise my hands to Jesus and I'm going to worship a Savior that I can't see for the last time. And the next time, the next time I'm going to worship a Savior that I can see, just like Brother Jerry sang a moment ago, and I'm going to fall at his feet, not merely somehow in my heart and in my spirit where I look through faith, but with glorified eyes and a glorified body. Child of God, one day, think about this, one day you are going to go to God in prayer for the last time and you are going to say, God, I screwed up. God, I said something I wish I hadn't have said. God, I thought something that I wish I hadn't have thought. God, will you forgive me? Do you know that one day you're going to ask for forgiveness for the last time? And then you're going to go to a world where there is no more sin. And thank God you are glorified beyond sin forever. And so you'll never have to ask for forgiveness again. How many times do we go through life as believers? And even though we know the Lord and love the Lord, our hearts are so overwhelmed and filled with doubt and uncertainty. And we go to the Lord and say, Lord, where are you? Lord, help me. Lord, I need you. I need you to speak to me. Did you know one day you're going to do that for the very last time? 
And the next time you talk to him, you're not going to be talking to him through the avenue of prayer, but you're going to be talking to him as a friend face to face. That is our future as God's people. That one day we lay aside this life of faith and what we now see through faith becomes sight. And Paul says, that is so much better. That is so much better than what we have now because this is temporary. This is fading away. That's real. That's lasting. And that is permanent. But how do we know that that is our destiny as God's people? Well, Paul tells us, In verse number five, he says, He who prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Your translation may say that he's given us the Spirit as an earnest or a deposit. And the idea is that when Jesus saves us, he puts his Spirit in us, and he does that uh, in the same way when you buy a home, you have to pay earnest money before you actually close on that home. When Amy and I bought our home as we moved a little over a year ago, we had to pay that seller earnest money. I think it was $500. We had to give them a $500 check to signal to them we really are serious about buying this home. And I figured that up the other day, and I thought about $500 towards that home over the course of a 30-year loan. That bought a doorknob is what that did. (laughs) And we did that to say to that seller, we are serious about buying this home. Here's a small deposit to let you know the rest of it is coming. What Paul says is that when God saves us through Christ, he put the spirit of Christ in us as a deposit to say, here's a little bit of heaven for you to get to heaven in. He doesn't just bless us. He didn't just give us good things. God gives us himself. He gives us the big payment first and says, now you should know that the rest is coming. Here's the earnest. Here's the guarantee. I'll just go ahead and move in with you. Paul says the guarantee we have is that the God we are going to has come to us. And because he's in us, there's no way we could ever fail to be anything but where he is. We have the guarantee that one day for us as God's people, the future involves a great trade-off. I'm going to trade all this for all that, thank God. But Paul wants us to go further, and he wants us to see the second fact, and that fact is that for God's people, the future involves a great payoff. He says in verse number 6, it's a new thought, a new paragraph. He says, so we are always of good courage. Because we know all that stuff about our tent being traded for something permanent, we always have courage. Isn't it interesting that Paul doesn't say we always have hope? even though he could have said that. He doesn't say we always have joy, even though that would fit. He doesn't say we always have peace. That would be fine. But we always have a good courage. The thought of heaven makes us bold. That's interesting. The awareness that this life really isn't all there is to this life that inspires us to courage. Why? Why is that? Well, notice what he says back in verse number 2. He says, in this tent we groan. That's true, isn't it? That's true in a superficial way. Some of y'all groan when you got out of bed this morning. It's true in a deeply spiritual way. Sometimes life is very, very hard and we pour our hearts out to God in, in prayers of lament or prayers of repentance, prayers of confession. Sometimes life is hard, but for all of God's people, we are groaning, right? Waiting for redemption, waiting for deliverance. This life is a life filled with sorrow. So that all death is, 
All death is, is the means that God uses to give us what we are groaning for. What are we groaning for? We're groaning to be in God's presence. We're groaning for deliverance. We're groaning to be with Him and to be like Him. And all death is, is the means that God uses to make that come to pass. So is death a threat? No. Is death a friend? Not really. But it certainly is a gift that God has given us to make every promise He has made to us come true in Jesus. That's why Paul would say this unbelievable statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 about death. You see 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 21 and 22. He says, for all things are yours. Now he's talking to a church that's divided over their favorite preachers. He says, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, they're all yours. Then he says this, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Paul says that Jesus has so radically changed death through his death and resurrection that through his relationship to death and your relationship to him, your relationship to death has been forever changed so that now death is merely the means that God uses to give you what, you what you've longed for and what you've grown for, which is to be with him, to be like him, and to be in his presence. So know that when our lives are over, or if you have lost people that you love dearly over the years, and you prayed for God to heal them, and you prayed for God to do miracles, and you prayed all of these prayers of hope, and God took them on anyway. Folks, God has answered every prayer that you prayed for them. God has healed them in a way that goes beyond medicine and goes beyond miracles. He has given them perfect health that Jesus himself has. That's a pretty good deal. We need to understand today that when a believer dies, they are not losing anything. They are gaining everything. When a believer dies, God is keeping every promise he made to them in Jesus. And he is fully completing his total saving work by taking them to be with him. That is why the apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 and verses number 21, he said about himself, he said, for me to live is Christ. To live is Christ. But what does he say? He says, but to die is gain. Then he says in Psalm 116, verse number 15, so good I put it on there twice. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. How can someone dying be precious? It's not precious in their sight. It's not precious in their family sight, is it? It's not precious in the sight of their friends, but it's precious in the sight of the Lord. Why? Because in that moment, in that moment, God finishes what he started when he brought them to Jesus. In that moment, God gives them everything that they long for in life. So what Paul's emphasizing here in these verses is important for us to comprehend that really God has kind of put this resurrection rhythm in our lives. And he talks about that. If you have your Bible open, 2 Corinthians 5, he talks about it back in 2 Corinthians chapter number 4, verses 10 and 11. Just in my Bible, it's right at the top of the page. It says that we are... In this life, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. You see what Paul's saying? He said, in this life we groan. And that groaning is like experiencing the death of Jesus. It's dying to self. It's dying to our passions. It's dying sometimes to our dreams and our ambitions, dying to our most cherished ideals. But while we die in this life, 
He is resurrecting us. So that as we live this life, we are living out the resurrected life of the Lord Jesus. Paul says we are people living with resurrection hope and resurrection confidence and resurrection courage because we are people with a resurrected future. Because we are a people who believe in a resurrected Savior. And so what Paul wants you to see is that God is so committed to the concept of resurrection. God loves the idea of resurrection so much that he actually wrote his son into the human story. And the Bible says in John chapter 1 and verse number 14 that that Savior, that the Word of God became flesh and He dwelt among us. Or literally, He tabernacled, He tented among us. God Himself took on this tent, this dying, decaying body. He took that on in Jesus so that He could take that tent to a cross and so He could bring that tent out of a grave. And God is so serious about proving his ability to resurrect the dead that he did it in Jesus so you would know he would do it one day for you. And that story is the complete story that God loves to tell. So that for us as God's people, we have to believe and hope and know that the final story about us is not our death, but it is resurrection. Just as the final story about Jesus was not death, but it was resurrection. So what happens to us when we die, friends, is this. We live this life, and we all hope it's a long life. And that life is filled with joy. We get married. We fall in love. We have children. We experience these great things. This life is filled with pain. We bury a spouse. We are cheated on through infidelity. We uh, go bankrupt. We have all kinds of heartbreak and sorrow, ups and downs. The rhythm of life is one of pain, suffering, heartache, joy, hope, life. That's life, isn't it? And we think that when this life For all that it is, we think that when it's over, that's the end of the story, and printed at the bottom of the page are the words, the end. What Paul is writing in this passage of Scripture is that when our lives are over, it's not as if the story is over. It is as if God has merely completed the foreword. And as if after all of our living and all of our loving and all of our giving and sacrificing and serving for all of our 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 or 100 years, even if it's that long or longer or not as long, Paul says that when this life is over and we think we turn the page to find the words, the end printed at the bottom, what happens is we turn the page to find the words, chapter one printed at the top. Folks, the story is not over when you die. The story only starts when you die. That's what Paul is saying here, that our life is still in front of us. And because our life is still in front of us, we are right now, he says, living by faith. Do you see what he says there? We walk by faith, knowing that while we are home in the body, we are away from the Lord, we walk by faith and not sight. Now, right now, all of us live by sight. That is... In this moment, my my eyes are responding to visual information, and somehow they are sending what they see through the optic nerve to my brain faster than my brain can comprehend it, so that I'm able to respond to visual cues in this world and orient my life around the things that I see. And that's how we live in this world. And yet for us as God's people, Paul says, We are living as if we have seen something our eyes have never looked at. Paul says that the child of God is living as if he is holding on to something that he's never held in his hands. He said there's something beyond and there's something above. There's something past this world that we have seen through the eye of faith that is controlling and shaping how we live. 
And what is that? It is a conviction that Jesus will raise us from the dead, that if we are home in this body, we are away from Him. But as soon as we are gone from this body, we will be at home with the Lord. The conviction is that one day as God's people, we will be with Jesus. That's what gives us good courage. That's what our eyes have seen that we've never seen. That's what we're holding on to that we've never touched, that one day we will be at home with Jesus. But as I thought about this, it kind of struck me that we don't necessarily believe that. Now, I know we believe we're going to go to heaven when we die. Don't get me wrong, but we don't really believe it. Because what we have today and what we're used to today is, is we're used to a Christianity without heaven. Just think, when was the last time you even heard a preacher preach about heaven? Used to be you didn't hear him preach about hell. And they don't do that anymore either. But we don't preach about heaven anymore, do we? We preach about how to solve our problems. We preach about what God may be doing in this life to kind of remodel everything that's happening in our hearts. It's all about managing difficult people. and It's all about dealing with your stress and raising your kids. It's all about making the most of this life today, right? And so we have a Christianity without heaven. And so I think that may be why we have Christians without faith and Christians without courage. And we have Christians, really, that don't believe they're going anywhere. And because they don't believe they're going anywhere, they can't get through anything. But here's the Apostle Paul, who's been stoned, who's been beaten, who's been nearly executed a bunch of times and eventually would be beheaded for Jesus. How's he able to get through that and hold on to his faith? Because he knows he's going somewhere. And because he knows he's going somewhere, he can get through anything. And where's he going? He says he's going home. He says, as soon as I'm away from this body, I will be home with the Lord. I will be at home with the Lord. Now, it is important you see that Paul is talking about things in the immediate. That if we are in this body, we're not with the Lord in his presence in that way. And if we are with the Lord in his presence in that way, we are not at home in our body. So Paul has, has no place in his logic for what's called soul sleep. There's no delay. There's not even a waiting room to get into heaven. What Paul says is that as soon as you're away from this body, you are at home with the Lord. It is 11.52, and I know some of y'all are struggling, because every week on Sunday mornings, this time of the morning, some of y'all want to go home, don't you? Y'all afraid to say man, afraid to laugh. <laughs> I'm not the only one here who's supposed to be honest. Y'all want to go home. The reason you want to go home is because you're starving to death and your stomach thinks your throat's been cut. No, the reason, the reason you want to go home is because home is the place you leave just to go back to, right? Home is the place where you're comfortable. Home is the place where people miss you when you're not there. When I'm not at home, I know that there's a 22-month-old little girl that wants her daddy there. And that for every car that comes down our cul-de-sac, she's looking wondering if it's him. There's people that miss me when I'm not at home. Friends, there are people over there that are looking for us. There are people at home that are waiting for us to get there. There are people that, they're probably not wondering when we are going to arrive, but there are people that have already made it home. Home is where I'm comfortable. Home is where I'm wanted. Home is where I'm loved, no matter what. Paul says that when this life is over, all I'm doing is going home. He said, all I'm doing is changing addresses. 
All I'm doing is moving out of this temporary dwelling to the place that I was born to be. Paul says, for me, I'm going home and I'm going home. You have to make sure you understand to be with the Lord. I'm going home to see him. I'm going home to be with him. I'm going home to be with Jesus. So, verse number nine, whether we're there or whether we're here, whether we are at home or whether we are away, we make it our aim to please him. If I know that my real home is with Jesus, I want to make sure I do everything that I can between now and when I am with Jesus to live so that his smile is on my life. I want to please him. And Paul gives a final image of heaven in verse number 10 by telling us we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and we will at that moment receive the reward for what we've done in this life. Now you read judgment seat like I do and you think of judge a judge sitting on a bench, dropping the hammer, getting ready to send somebody to the electric chair. That's not what Paul's writing about here. What Paul's writing about really is more like the end of the Olympic Games. They had something similar to the Olympic Games in the city of Corinth during Paul's lifetime called the Ithbian Games. It wasn't quite as big of a deal as the original Olympic Games, but it was still a big deal. And in those ancient games when the, the guys would get out and wrestle or when they would run their races or engage in their competitions, when all of that was over, they would stand before their king. And that king would determine who won the race or who won the fight. And they would hand out to the winner an olive branch, an olive crown for them to wear. And when that runner or that competitor stood before that king, they were standing at a judgment seat. It was called a Bema judgment. They were standing before the Bema. What Paul says is that one day our race is going to end and we are going to stand before the Lord. And the Lord is going to evaluate our lives and reward us based upon how faithful that we've been. So his idea and his thinking is, is pretty simple, that if we really believe we're going to heaven, maybe we ought to start living like it. Maybe we ought to start running this race like we're actually in the race, like we're actually on the clock. Maybe we ought to start fighting this fight with our flesh and with sin and with the world and with the devil. Maybe we ought to start fighting that as if we want to win it. Because one day, think of that image at the Olympics where they're standing on that podium with the American flag on their shoulders and somebody puts a gold medal around their neck and they're playing the national anthem. That's where we're headed. That's where we're headed. That one day our Savior, our judge, will bring us home to be with him and he will evaluate the life that we've lived. After he was in the Beatles, uh, John Lennon's most, I guess his most, fav most famous song was the song Imagine. Imagine, and it, it really is a um, kind of a song about a secular utopia. What would it be like if there were no more borders and no more country? But one of the verses in the song says, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us and above us only sky. And then he switches a little bit and he says, imagine all the people living for today. Well, I hate to break it to Mr. Lennon. I don't have to imagine people living for today. Everywhere I go, everywhere I look, the majority of people I interact with, they're living for today. Because today's all they've got. Paul says in these verses, we can't live that way. Because there's something more real than today. There's something more permanent than this life. And that is the belief that one day I'm going to be at home with Jesus. And if I believe I'm going to meet him, then I want to live like I'm going to meet him. That's what happens when a believer dies. A believer, when they go into the grave, they've not gone into the grave. They've gone to be with the Lord. They've traded a temporary 
life for something real, something lasting, and something permanent. But I need to make it absolutely clear from Scripture this morning that what Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this in no way applies to everybody. This is only talking about people who have put their faith in Jesus. Paul does not say a word about those who die without knowing Christ. He doesn't say it here, but there are plenty of places in the Bible that tell us exactly what happens when somebody dies outside of Jesus. The Bible says that really everything in 2 Corinthians 5 about what happens to a believer in Jesus when they die, you can take that and look at its exact opposite extreme and you can see what happens to somebody who dies without Jesus. They're not going to be with the Lord. They're going to be away from Him forever. They're not going to a world where they will live forever, but they are going into a place truly where they are going to die forever, separated from God in a place where Jesus Himself said was a place of fire and brimstone. He said, Jesus said, where the fire is not quenched and the worm dieth not. Jesus told a story about hell, and he said that a man died and he went to hell, and he said when he was there, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and the only thought on his mind was, how can I get a drop of water to soothe my tongue? That's how Jesus talked about hell. So does everybody who dies get to go to heaven? No. Hell is a real place. And hell is a place much more terrible than I could ever describe to you. But you don't have to go there. What Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 5 could absolutely be true for you. That when you die, you are going into life. And all the pain and sorrow of this life are no more because you have gone to be with Jesus. Again, you're going to die one day. Congratulations. You meet every single qualification in that you are alive in this world and that's all that you need. You don't have to be old to die. You don't have to be sick to die. People die who are perfectly healthy and very young every day. But all of us are going to die. And all of us are going somewhere when we die. And if the Bible is true, then when this life is over, I will be somewhere. I will know where I'm at. And I will know why I'm there. So I would want to know, since Paul says he knew that he was going to be with the Lord, do you know that today? Not, man, I hope that's true, or I'd like to believe that's true. I'm pretty sure it's true. Do you know that? Not because I'm threatening you with death. I hope all of you have a whole lot, whole lot of time left. But however much time we have left, it's going to go by too quick. It really is. And one day it'll be over. And when it's over, do you know that you're going to go be with the Lord? Or is it not settled? Is it not settled? Let's stand together today. And... While our musicians play and get ready to have our invitation, can we have every head bowed and every eye closed? While they play softly, I just want to ask you a couple questions. Nobody's looking around right now. In the stillness of this moment, I would just ask you, if you know, if you know, if you know that you are going to heaven when you die, would you put your hand up? That's great. I see a lot of hands up. The majority of our hands are up. Thank the Lord that's true. If you are here today and you say, I hope I'm going to heaven. I want to go to heaven. I'd like to go to heaven. I'm pretty sure I'm going to heaven. Would you put your hand up? I hope so. I I want to, but I can't say I know it. I hope it's true. Maybe it is. 
I see your hands. There are a bunch of hands up today. I know some of you, during the time we've been preaching about death and what the Bible says happens to us when we die and after we die, some of you have been thinking about this for the first time in a long time, maybe for the first time ever. It's caused you to really ponder what's going to happen to you. And it's been kind of a shock to me because I have people that are seniors ask me all the time about heaven and about their families and what happens when somebody dies. But it seems like it's been our young people that have been thinking about that. And guys, I just simply want you to know that life is short. Life is very, very short. You might be here today and you might be 15, 16, 18, whatever. I'm 34 and you think I'm ancient. And you think some of these folks around here are plumb prehistoric. I get that. I get that. But you need to know, you need to know, you're going to turn around in a week or two, you're going to be married and have kids of your own. And you're going to turn around a little bit after that, you're going to be at your retirement party. And it won't be long until your life is going to be over. Now, I pray you have a long life and a good life, but you need to make sure you're ready to go be with Jesus. And that's not just, not just because of heaven, but because you do have a whole life to live between now and heaven. And I pray to God that not only you'd go to heaven when you die, but you'd have something to show for it. And so the last question is, how many of you that know you're going to heaven really are living like you're going to heaven? Or how many of you would look and say that if I stood before Jesus right now to receive my rewards, it's going to be pretty pitiful. And I'd like for that to change. Would you raise your hand? Say, my rewards, uh, they're not going to be much. And I, I, I want to I make a difference for Jesus while I'm here. I see your hands. Let me pray for you. You can leave here today knowing that you're ready to meet Jesus, knowing you're going to be with him. If you need help figuring that out, please come see me. Please come see me. Let me help you. Father, God, you are at work in our hearts now. But, Lord, I pray. Lord, I guess I, I would pray that that we wouldn't forget what we've heard this morning when we go eat or even when we come back tonight or as we go into our routine next week. But we would really think about, you know, life is short and death is sure, that one day we are going to meet you. And God, we need to be ready for that. There are a lot of people here that know they're going to heaven. And Lord, that is a testimony to your grace. It's amazing to see people say with confidence, Jesus is my Savior and heaven is my home. But some of those people have to be honest and say that if they were going to heaven now, Lord, there wouldn't be there wouldn't be a lot to show for this life they've had. God, help us never to waste our lives. Help us never to waste a moment, but to know that really the only eternal thing about our lives is what we do for Jesus. But then there, Lord, there are a lot of people here that, that they don't know. They just don't know. They hope they're going to heaven, and I hope they are too. But Lord, they're not sure. I pray that you would, I pray that you would so convince them of the need for Jesus and the need for certainty that they would not be able to sleep or eat. Maybe they wouldn't even be able to, to leave our property today until they make things right. But Lord, I simply pray you do your work. I pray that your word is falling on good ground. And I pray that it would bring forth a harvest for the glory of the Lord Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Thank you.